Welcome to Instrumental, a podcast where we ask questions about how the mind and music are intertwined and also gives you tips for applying what you learn about music into your life. I'm your host, Bria, and this episode is all about babies. Yay! (laughs) You may love them, you may hate them, you may be completely indifferent to babies, but the question we're asking today is, what musical abilities are we born with, and what might those abilities tell us about music's role in our survival as a species? Keep listening to find out more. I'm really excited for today's topic because babies are one of the sweetest things ever, to me at least. And as we're going to learn today, babies are pretty sophisticated music listeners. There are a lot of aspects of music that babies pick up on and respond to from the get-go. Although musical development is a whole field of study on its own, we're focusing today on what musical abilities are present in infants before they hit their first birthday. First off, why should we even care about or how babies even process music? One reason why studying infants' musical perception is so interesting is because infants are relatively naive music listeners. When we study how adults perceive and process music, researchers have to take into account that adult brains have been enculturated to certain musical traditions. As adults, our ear, so to speak, gets used to understanding music in a certain way depending on the culture that we were raised in. With babies, they haven't had much time to soak up their musical culture yet. You might think that if we go to the very beginning of a baby's life, that they would be completely blank, itsy-bitsy musical slates, where auditory information seems unorganized or noisy because they haven't had a lot of time to learn musical patterns yet. This is not the case, though. Infants are inherently musical beings and are predisposed to pay attention to music. Any features of music that infants can distinguish or take notice of is more likely to be a common way all humans process music, rather than being dependent on what musical culture they happened to be born into. Or here's another way to think about this idea. Babies don't get born being prepared to only speak one particular language. They have the capacity to learn any language, and perhaps many languages, because the language that they understand and speak as an adult depends on which languages they're surrounded by when they grow up. It's the same way with music. Some of us grew up listening to Western major and minor tonalities, But those same Western tonalities might sound completely unfamiliar to someone in Bali, who grew up listening to gamelan music scales and tonalities. Another question you might be asking is, how do researchers actually study whether infants are noticing certain musical features? It's not like you can have a conversation with a baby and ask them about what they're experiencing. Researchers have come up with some really creative ways to gain insight into when infants are noticing changes in music that they hear or when they prefer certain types of music. A common method is by measuring whether an infant turns its head towards an auditory source that it senses has changed. 
When we perceive something to be important or to change in the environment, we often orient our head in that direction. It's like we're devoting more of our attention to the information that's coming at us, trying to figure it out and understand what's happening. And if we prefer or enjoy that information, we'd spend more time looking in that direction. If we didn't notice a change in the environment or didn't deem a change to be important and worth our attention, then we probably wouldn't turn our head that way. The same idea can be applied to babies. In some experimental setups, the researchers teach baby participants a game of sorts. First, speakers are placed on either side of the baby's head and may be playing a repeating melody or rhythm or whatever other musical element the experiment is looking at. When there's a change in the repeating pattern and the baby turns its head to figure out what the heck is happening, then the baby is also visually rewarded with a colorful mechanical toy like a dancing bear activating and turning on. If the baby turns its head when there's no change in the music or fails to turn its head when there is a change, the toy doesn't activate. For example, let's say there's some repeating pitches that are being played on your right side and you hear it over and over and over again. If you're a baby in one of these experiments and you notice that the tempo or the speed changes and you turn your head to figure out what's going on, you'll also see that little dancing bear. It's a really simple game, but it helps researchers understand when babies are noticing differences through their behavior. And these head-turning observations are definitely not the only way to collect information about babies' musical responses. Researchers might also monitor changes in the baby's heart rate or keep track of its brain activity or observe other proxy behaviors like eye gaze that can tell us how babies are responding to music. All right, what exactly are infants able to distinguish when listening to music? There are dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of studies that look at infant responses to music and we don't have time to cover all of them, and there are also a ton of possible musical variables that have been studied. So in this episode, we're going to go over the highlights of two major elements of music. The first is rhythmic processing, and the other is pitch processing. Let's start with how infants process the rhythmic aspects of music. A major feature of music is how it's organized in time, which often encompasses the elements of rhythm and meter. And if you're not a musician, meter just refers to this recurring pattern of accents that tell the listener how the beats of the music are grouped together predictably. Like, a march has a meter where the beat is divisible by two, because you're stepping to it and you have two legs. Or the waltz has a meter where the beat is divisible by three, because there's sets of three movements in the dance. Infants are able to categorize rhythmic patterns based on the music's metrical structure. And an experiment by Jessica Phillips Silver and Laurel Trainer looks at how movement helps infants encode or learn different rhythmic patterns. In their experiment, they had seven-month-old infants listen to this rhythmic pattern that's metrically ambiguous. It doesn't have any accented beats, so it's not clear from listening how the rhythm should be organized. Here's a clip from the experiment of that metrically ambiguous rhythm.
And while the babies are listening to this ambiguous rhythm, half of the baby participants get bounced on every second beat. So it feels similar to a march. And another, I guess the other half of the babies get bounced on every third beat. So it has the feel of a waltz rhythm, but still they're hearing the ambiguous, unaccented rhythm. Then in a second stage of the experiment, All the babies hear the rhythm that they heard before, but this time there are accents auditorily added to emulate either that double march, and that sounds something like this. And then they hear another version of that rhythm where the accents are added to emulate that triple waltz feel. Here's a clip of that. And then the researchers measured how long the infants turn their head to listen to both of these accented rhythms. The babies listened longer to the accented rhythm that matched how they were bounced. This indicates that they preferred the meter that they had been moved to. Philip Silver and Trainer did the same experiments, and the results were the same even if the infants were blindfolded. I read through the experiment, and I'm not clear how they blindfolded the babies, But this indicates that visual information while bouncing isn't a necessary sensory input for this learning effect of the rhythm to happen. Then they did the experiment for a third time, and this time, instead of bouncing the babies to the music, the babies watched another adult bounce to the ambiguous music in either a double or a triple meter, but the babies themselves just sat still. This time, in the second stage of the experiment, the infants did not show a preference to listening to either versions of the accented rhythms. What does this mean altogether? These findings indicate that movement and our body's vestibular system is a really important way that infants and babies organize and perceive musical rhythms. Another major organizational feature of music is how pitches are organized in space, like how high or how low we perceive a certain note to be. And babies pay attention to the pitch height of voices they hear in songs. There's evidence from Christine Sang and Nicole Conrad that infants prefer listening to some types of songs that are sung in either a high-pitched voice or a low-pitched voice. They had six- and seven-month-old infants listen to unfamiliar lullabies and play songs, and either type of song was heard in either a high-pitched version or a low-pitched version. Again, the infant's preference was evaluated on a head-turning preference procedure. It turns out the infants preferred listening to the low-pitched versions of the lullabies and high-pitched versions of the play songs. The researchers suggested that a song's overall pitch height communicates emotional information to the infant, and this emotional message can influence whether they pay attention to the music, but it all depends on the song's context. Another element of music that infants perceive is consonance, or generally how pleasant music sounds, and dissonance, or how unpleasant something sounds. When we combine two individual pitches, that is known as an interval, and infants seem to prefer some intervals over others. 
For example, babies prefer consonant-sounding intervals like a perfect fourth, and a perfect fifth, to more dissonant-sounding intervals. They do not like types of intervals that are dissonant, like this tritone. Traditionally in Western music, this tritone interval is thought to be the most dissonant of all the intervals, and babies don't like listening to it either. Instead, they'll spend more time listening to consonant music with a pleasant melodic or harmonic quality. Altogether, it's pretty impressive that infants can understand and perceive all these and even more auditory features of music that they're hearing. In their first year of life, babies aren't just hearing this random tidal wave of noise. All this research tells us that infants are actually pretty sophisticated listeners of music. What's also really interesting to me is infants are able to perceive some aspects of music that adults don't pick up on. Because babies are relatively naive music listeners, they might perceive small changes in music that an adult, who has spent decades being enculturated into a certain musical tradition, adults just aren't able to hear to the same fine degree that some infants are. Sort of like adults can't necessarily hear or pronounce subtle syllable changes of other non-native languages. In the same way, some musical changes might not be deemed as meaningful because there's a subtle auditory difference that doesn't fit into an adult's musical template. Take meter, for example. Infants that are six months old are able to perceive small changes in foreign metrical patterns more accurately than adults, but this ability disappears by the time the infants are 12 months old. The adaptability of the infant's brain starts to prioritize attention to meters that happen more in the baby's own culture by their first birthday. The same goes for pitches in unfamiliar scales. Infants are able to hear when a single pitch is out of tune for an unfamiliar scale better than adults who have become used to hearing scales that organize pitches in a certain way. their ability to process and understand music every single day. Talking or singing that's directed towards infants has a certain quality that we all kind of know, right? We'd never greet a baby with a regular, good morning, it's nice to see you. Unless, I guess if you're really awkward around babies, maybe. Most of the time, our voice gets this more musical, high-pitched, slower, and more intimate sound to it. Something like, Good morning! It's so nice to see you! (laughs) Oh gosh. And just for the record, if we're ever together in person and I happen to see baby, baby ducklings, I will whip out the exact same voice. The point is, we generally change our vocal quality when we're communicating with babies, and it's not just me. This tone of voice is very similar for infant directed speech and infant directed singing. If you play versions of the same song that are sung to an infant versus not sung to an infant, adults can identify which version was sung to a baby. 
This ability to identify infant-directed singing holds up no matter the singer or the listener's musical and cultural backgrounds. So you could probably tell whether a voice was singing to a baby, even if you couldn't understand the words of the song, even if you weren't familiar with the musical culture, and even if you weren't a singer or a musician yourself. The way we change how we communicate with infants seems to be shared between all human cultures. Alright, so what's the advantage to the babies, and even the adults, when we communicate with this high-pitched, slower, and more intimate vocal quality? Well, first off, babies pay more attention to adults who speak to them with this type of musical tone, because that type of musical expressiveness gives a lot of relevant information to the infant. Babies are pretty useless, I'll be honest, in terms of their own survival and ensuring that they will live to see another day, so they depend on the adults around them to help them out. Adults who communicate with these infant-directed speech qualities are non-verbally communicating to the baby that they care and that they are there to ensure that the baby gets what it needs. And much of that emotional unspoken quality of what we say and how we sing reflects the musical elements that babies prefer listening to. Across all cultures, infant-directed singing is used to communicate emotional messages of safety and they're used to soothe the infant. Caregivers often use music like lullabies to help regulate their infant's emotions when these babies are too young to be able to regulate their emotions for themselves. And when babies hear those musical qualities, they pay attention to whoever's singing to them, which creates this like beautiful, positive social feedback loop that helps the baby and caregiver bond. Music is one of the most fundamental tools that parents use to communicate and care for and connect with their children. Everything we've learned about infants' perception of music and the role of music in emotional communication and regulation is used in music therapy. There's a specialty of music therapy called NICU music therapy, spelled N-I-C-U, which stands for Neonative Intensive Care Unit. NICU music therapists work with infants who are medically fragile, often because they're born prematurely, and they often need support to physically regulate their bodies, get strong enough to breathe, and learn how to feed on their own. There are several NICU music therapy protocols, but one of my favorites is called MOLT multimodal stimulation, where the music therapist will hold the baby and sing to it while touching the infant's body and massaging it in a very systematic order. When the massage is synchronized with the music and the music and the touch happen in a predetermined, developmentally appropriate way, multimodal stimulation can increase the baby's sensory tolerance to its environment and help regulate its heart rate and breathing patterns. Because these premature infants have very fragile sensory systems, the music used in the NICU needs to be rhythmically predictable and melodically consonant to support their regulation. A major element of NICU music therapy training involves learning how to read an infant's response to the music and incorporating the right balance of musical elements in real time. It's so important to get the right balance so that you don't overstimulate and harm the baby if the music becomes overwhelming, even if to our ears it might just sound like a quiet lullaby. 
But when used in the right way, music can be super effective for helping these infants in a way that no other medical tool can. This is one area with a really robust research foundation that highlights the effectiveness of music therapy. For example, an infant in the NICU who receives music therapy becomes physically healthy enough to go home sooner on average. Uh, For baby girls, it's an average of 12 days sooner, and for baby boys, it's an average of 2 days sooner than infants that did not receive music therapy. That is so amazing, not only because it means that these babies are stronger and healthier, but also because music therapy can potentially save hospitals thousands and thousands of dollars in medical costs. If you're interested in diving into this research a little more, I'm going to link some research from Jane Stanley and Andrea Savasco Trotter in the show notes, so check that out on our website. Of course, all this knowledge about infants' music processing can also be applied and can benefit typically developing babies. Early exposure to music, especially through caregiver-infant interactions, can build a foundation for emotion regulation and facilitate social connections that extend into the rest of a child's life. So if you have a baby, even if you're self-conscious, I give you permission I encourage you very strongly to sing to your baby more. Your baby cannot get enough of an emotional connection with you, and music is a great way to build up that bond. And babies prefer hearing their caregivers' voices to voices of complete strangers, even if it's Renee Fleming or another famous opera singer or a professional. Sing a lot as a parent. And you're probably a busy parent, I don't know any other kind of parent, and maybe you don't have time to put on a mini concert for your baby, but singing can be worked into the daily routine that you're already sharing with your infant. Maybe you improvise and sing a little song or a ditty between activities like prepping your baby for meals or bath time or going to bed. Or how about this? You could sing your own favorite songs with your kid in the car when you're traveling. Singing music you like is probably more fun than turning on a children's music CD that, I don't know, may or may not get irritating after listening to it for the hundredth time. Live music that you share with your child is always going to be more individualized and more responsive, and that is all going to help this really important bonding process. And if you do not have a baby, that's okay too. Just appreciate how amazing it is that we were born with this ability to perceive music. As infants, we were attuned from the very beginning to be responsive to the musicality in speech and, of course, singing. And this musicality helped us build um, and set the foundation for how we bond with others and communicate emotionally, and it probably helped us survive. Music is a basic human feature. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Instrumental. Check out our website, instrumentalpodcast.com, for show notes and more information on the research and music that you heard. Um, Oh, follow us on Twitter at at instrumentalpod. Thank you to Daniel Goldschmidt for composing our intro music. And our next episode will be out on Friday. I'll see you then. Bye.